Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on the Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish, and you can follow me on the Twitter at Scavendish. If you like this show, rate, review, subscribe. Tell someone you know. Tell someone you don't know. Maybe, you know, I don't know, put a sign in front of your house. Tells, tells people to subscribe to us. Matter of fact, if anybody wants to do that, we will make signs for you to put in front of your house. Are you asking people to build miniature billboards? Sure. In their neighborhoods? Sure. For our podcast? Sure. That'd be great. We'd feels love like that. A big, feels like a big ask, Steve. Feels like a big ask. If anybody wants to do it, DM us. We'll make it happen. Uh, that is true. We will definitely do that. Our guest today on the show Jordan Ritter Khan, author, podcaster, writer, journalist extraordinaire, uh, and uh, just a, a, an all around good dude here in Nashville, has written a book, uh, just an outstanding reporter, Stephen. Um, before we get into why, why we have him on the show and what we are going to talk to him about, Lamestream, Steve, is brought to you by whom? It's brought to you, you, Braden. It's brought me? to you. To me? To you, by Jaspers. <laughs> Is it always Jaspers? It's always Jaspers. Always. It's never anyone else. It is Jaspers, the also, sole sponsor of Lamestream Sports. Title sponsor, even. Go to Jaspers. A fancy term. And buy a food item or a beverage. It's way easier than putting up a billboard in your front yard. Just go to Jaspers for us. How about that? Hey, Braden. Hey, Braden. You know when it's a great time to go to Jaspers? In the middle of a worldwide sporting event. <laughs> that's on at 6 a.m i don't think they're i don't think they're open at 6 a.m nor do i think you should be drinking at 6 a.m i don't know about that when, but, when it says when did, it says four to six happy hour on the website that's not what they're talking about that's Steve. not a.m no not liquid breakfast i do enjoy liquid breakfast when i'm allowed it's a great place to catch a game it's also a great place to go and watch you know and watch the olympics watch swimming for example the swimming coverage on nbc has been fantastic a lot of fun to watch every night if you want a if you want a really good beverage and a meal there's no better place than Jaspers. Always Jaspers. All right. So we will get to our conversation with Jordan Ritter Khan coming up in just a few minutes. And of course, we'll have recommendations on later on in the podcast as we do each and every week. But I thought, speaking of the Olympics, Steve, I, I thought I thought the Simone Biles incident gives us an opportunity to highlight some media behavior, let's call it, on the interwebs that you know, I think you and I can address. We both have sort of different takeaways from our our own personal Simone Biles incident <laughs> as we all now experience the entire world in our own little bubbles. What do you think people should learn from the reaction to Simone Biles pulling out of the all around women's gymnastics event? What do you think people should learn, Steve? I think that they should, they should learn that they don't have to share shitty opinions online. They don't. They don't. If somebody says something really stupid, like Simone Biles is a quitter or, or a sociopath, or a sociopath or whatever. If somebody says something like that, you don't have to share it with anybody else. It can <laughs> reside in their own social media feed. You don't have to amplify it, retweet it. You post it on your Facebook page, you know, go after them on Instagram. You can just let a stupid thing lie. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine. There's, there's nothing more that, that we really, we can add to the discourse on this. I had somebody text me the other day and they were like, I had to mute the word Simone online. Uh, I had to mute the word Biles online because every time I went on to my favorite social media, it was it was nothing but it was nothing but this kind of just like insane back and forth over you know is she a hero is she a villain is she whatever else you know I get it she's the biggest figure of the Olympics coming in somebody had a really good point about this is it, when we're talking about Simone Biles kind of her state NBC bears some responsibility in creating this thing that is Simone Biles on kind of the, the run up to the games because, you know, they were trying to create this ratings monster and but they're not delivering. They're not. And so you don't have to engage. If don't somebody says, if somebody amplify. says something, yeah. If somebody says something, you don't have to, you don't have to at them. What do you think about the screen grab? Cause it doesn't share the content. It's not clickable, but you do get to then actually share the opinion. So I, I don't, I don't even do that. I don't, I don't even do that one. I will do that occasionally, but mostly you just don't have to. No, just ignore it. Just, you could just, you could just sort of ignore it. You can ha and have a much more delightful time online or better yet do what I've done, which is curate stupidity and misinformation out of my Twitter experience and feed. I don't know how I've done this, Steve, but I saw your tweets about this. And I had to actually go search Simone Biles' name 
to actually see the hatred. I immediately regretted doing that, of course, and then spent 35 minutes waiting for my wife to get home, contemplating the meaning of my existence. But but, but somehow, some way, I had curated all of the stupidity and misinformation out of my feed. And now I immediately, of course, then was like, well, wait a second. Have I created an echo chamber where I only hear the opinions I want to hear? And then you have to sort of calm down and say, well, if I want Instagram experience for me to be just cat videos and that's what I want my Instagram experience to be, then that's what I have the right to, to curate. So I think the message is don't amplify. I think there's a follow-up, which is you you can just sort of eliminate the people who do. <laughs> and so, for, so for instance, if you, for instance, retweet Darren Rovell into my feed, you you leave my feed. I know yeah. there are people that I know in real life that I have removed them from my feed because they kept retweeting <laughs> Darren Ravel. Right. And so, you know, if it's somebody that I actually know in real life, I'll warn them. I'll be like, dude, don't retweet Darren Ravel. You don't have to. Yeah. You absolutely don't have to. You don't have to, you don't have to retweet Clay Travis when, when he's obviously trying to politicize, you know, something yeah. as toxic as the, as the Simone Biles conversation. I mean, you, you just don't, you I, don't I, have to do it. And, and, and you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to retweet. You're amplifying right now. <laughs> You're doing <laughs> you it. You're amplifying it right now. Steve. You don't Stop have to it. retweet a turducken of terrible <laughs> opinions of Darren Ravel talking to Clay Travis. <laughs> you don't have to do it. I, I know. Like once every six months, I get that turducken dropped into my into my feed. Yeah, it just, is. It I is just, just come it on. It's horrible. You guys are fucking adults. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, the, the the other thing I I took away from this because I literally I, I'm not even kidding about like the I waited for my wife to come home. I wanted to talk to her about it. And because I was very torn at first when I first saw the news and I first started to watch. Now, it took me watching the incidents back to back when they show all of the, the missteps by her. It very it, it sort of solidified in my head. Oh, this is extremely yeah. dangerous. She's clearly shook right now. And if she does something, you know, this isn't shooting jumpers. OK, like this isn't free throws we're talking about here. This is this isn't somebody trying to do an uncomplicated routine or an right, uncomplicated right. vault. I mean, and, she's doing things literally no one else in the world can do and contorting her way, her body in ways that so you're already, gravity, so, yeah. both of us are already like having the argument. We're yeah. not even supposed to have it. Yeah. I, I, I just going to have it. I just wanted to make the point that I was conflicted and that it's okay to take a minute, not spew something onto Twitter <laughs> and think through both sides with nuance. Because again, I am very disappointed that us didn't win gold. I am disappointed for her teammates. That's between her and them. I have all of these sort of like team element things inside of me that say, no, no, you've trained for five years for this moment and all this stuff. But at the same time, I'm pro mental health awareness. I'm pro Simone Biles doesn't owe us a damn thing. I'm pro all the reasons why we support her. So it's okay to have two, two things be true at the same time and for you not to spew them on Twitter. <laughs> you can just you can just think about it in your own living room. <laughs> just absolutely just talk to your spouse about it and think through why you feel a certain way and my wife looks at me and goes, you're just talking to me because you need to, you want to tweet something, don't you? And, and I was like, I was like, actually, no, I don't. And I didn't that night. I, I had no desire to get into that filth, but I did want to talk to her about it because I personally was conflicted and it's okay to have two different things in your mind that are not extreme, but maybe conflict a little bit. It's okay. You don't have to resolve them. Sometimes that right. conflict exactly. is something that is just a part of life. Yes. Do you not think Simone Biles for the rest of her life is going to be like, what if? Yeah. Like she's going to do that the rest of her life. We don't need to do it for her. Okay. Right. So, so, so there you go. All right. Uh, Jordan Ritter Khan. Steve, why did we talk to him? Because he's aside from the fact that he's amazing. Jordan Ritter Khan is, is one of these <laughs> kind of, I'd call him kind of a, a friend of mine called him a graceful writer one time. Uh, and it, and it's true. Just sort of like, the way he structures things is is very graceful. It's elegant. Uh, yeah, elegant. I always think about kind of myself as a writer, and I'm I'm, I'm a grinder as a writer. I it, it is not. I don't have the natural kind of writer thing. I have to work very hard at it. And guys like Jordan, somebody came down from heaven and touched them on the touched them on the shoulder, and they're able to sort of do this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just kind of in awe of these of these folks. I've read his long form stuff on Grantland and and The Ringer for years. He's very good. He made this super interesting transition from taking that kind of long form ability and transferring it to a different medium from the written word into these long form podcasts. He did one, the, the series first on the Seattle supersonics and kind of, you know, what if, and, and they're leaving for Oklahoma city. And then he's done this one, this podcast series 
now, which is on Lynn Bias. And it's out right now. I highly recommend it. It's, it, it is a great piece of narrative, uh, of narrative storytelling. And, and I'm just kind of fascinated at, and it will, and he gets into this, what parts of your brain do you have? Are there, are those transfers, you know, do you have to work really hard at something else to, to, in order to be able to, to pull yeah. something off like this, you know, screw this guy. He does everything well, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, if you can't tell, I'm a fan of his work and very timely because imagine, again, Thursday night was the NBA draft. Imagine if the number two pick in the draft or the number one pick in the draft died a couple of days later. Like, yeah. it's just it's just an insane story that I don't think a lot of young people know. And uh, Jordan, of course, tells the story very eloquently on his new podcast, uh, of course, called What If. He's got the book. Uh, you'll hear about all this good stuff. You know, I mean, if you if you haven't picked up the road to Raqqa, uh, sorry, the road from Raqqa, which is about one of the main characters runs a restaurant in Sumner County, you should absolutely pick that up. It's a fantastic book, just absolutely wonderful. Well, Jordan will explain all of this stuff and a whole lot more. And he's a Nashvilleian and, and how to order off the menu <laughs> and how to order off the menu at the the cafe, which of course you should also go to. It is spectacular after you go to Jasper's, of course. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> without any more blathering from us, uh, Steve, this was our conversation with the ringers, Jordan Ritter Khan. Jordan, welcome to the show, man. Great to see you. How are you? How are you doing? How have you been? Uh, I, I'm I'm doing pretty well, all, all things considered. Um, and uh, great to see you. Great, great, thanks so much for for having me on. Excited to to be here and to, to talk with you both. So generally, uh, I feel like, and you guys can can correct me if I'm wrong here because you're both fantastic writers. But generally, when you hear the phrase like jack of all trades, that that probably feels like the follow up to that is like master of none, right? Like you don't. I, can you be a jack of all trades and a master of all of it? Because that's sort of where you are in your career. I enjoy your long form. I enjoy your short form. I've read your book. I've listened to your podcasts. You kind of do it all, man. And uh, and I think you, you do it all very, very well. So why don't you introduce your career to everybody here in Nashville that's listening for the first time that maybe doesn't know your name? Yeah. Well, that's, that's really, really kind of you. And uh, honestly, to, to answer your question, and I would say no. You definitely can't be um, a, a a jack of all trades and, uh, and and a master of them all. And and I don't really. It's funny that you say that. I and I don't really think of myself as as necessarily a jack of all trades because the the one thing that I do and it, and it does it can be in a, in a shorter story or it can be in a podcast or it can be in a book is just is storytelling, nonfiction storytelling. So sitting down with with people and asking them questions about their lives and, and getting to learn their story and then finding a way to tell that story to an audience. I am not someone who uh, has a lot of takes um, or, or when I do, they're, they're, they're very poorly formed takes and uh, <laughs> doing, doing what you do, um, Braden, just where you can just get, get on the mic and, and kind of talk thoughtfully about, about a topic for X amount of time is just something hours like, at a time. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's just not, not my skill set. I once had to do, I was once asked to do like an hour of, of sports radio uh, in the, in a studio with another host. And it was like the most stressful hour of my life. So um, I, I'm definitely not, not a master of, of that trade of, of, uh, of what you do so well. I think that was me actually. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? No, I, I spent a little I, bit I feel... of time with you. The one I'm thinking of was in new Orleans, but I okay, did come okay, into the okay. studio with you once. And that was also stressful, but it was shorter. We, we did like 15 <laughs> minutes, maybe 30. I was going to say, uh, I, I, I had to do an hour in new Orleans once and it, it almost killed me oh man like um, I, I immediately feel terrible now <laughs> uh so in, in terms of just kind of explaining who, who i am and what i do so my i my job is i'm a staff writer at the ringer um the website podcast network multimedia company uh started by bill simmons and now now owned by spotify and my job there is to you know really just tell tell stories um so i i mostly do kind of long in-depth pieces um sometimes they're written for the website now you know i'm i've now done a couple of narrative multi-episode podcasts um and then uh in addition to that i've you know have written a book and i'm and starting to work on on a second one and and yeah but the thing that kind of links all of these is just telling true stories um that that are compelling and that hopefully um you know, get, get at something, something fascinating about a person or a group of people or, or a place or, or an idea uh, and, uh, and, and finding a way to, to tell them and that audiences hopefully connect to. 
the podcast that you have out right now is called what if, and it's about, it's about Lynn bias. And for a certain age of fan, they're not familiar with Lynn bias. Uh, And I think you, I think you lay this out pretty, pretty eloquently there. It's not like there's, you know, YouTube uh, clips of Lynn bias just kind of floating around. They're all kind of grainy, you know, they're, they're kind of stitched together from a lot of it from like ACC tournament stuff. I I was a, I grew up a huge Celtics fan. I, I was in high school at that time. And I remember, I remember I was was driving to school uh, for a, for a summer practice, and when the news came over the radio that the bias was dead, and it was just it was just shocking, absolutely shocking, in a way that I feel has been lost. That just like how big of an event this was. So how did you how did you get to bias as a as a subject, and and what'd you find? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting what, what you, um, just, just to kind of pick up a little bit on, on what you were just saying, the story of Lynn Bias's death is a story that it, it feels like registers in different ways to different generations. Um, and so for some people, for, for so many people who, whether whether they were kids or they were um, they were adults, it's, it's one of those deaths where just like you just said, you remember where you were when, when you heard the news. Um, it, it, it was that kind of generation defining, not, not only in the, not only if you're an NBA fan or a Celtics fan, but uh, a sports fan in general, or, or even someone who doesn't follow sports. It, it was just, it was one of those massive, massive um, stories when it happened. Uh, for some people, you know, I was, I was a toddler. Um, I, I was 18 months old um, when, when bias died. And for me, and I think other particularly sports fans um, around my age, it's one of those stories that I was too young to watch him play. Um, I was too young to remember him when he was when he was alive. But I always, always knew who he was. Like you just you learn that story at such a young age. And it's kind of like um, one of those pieces of, I, I guess, sports history that gets kind of stuck in your brain as a, as a kid who's a sports fan. And then there, there is a generation you know, younger than me who is even more kind of removed from, from that period of time, who a lot of them know his name, um, but some of them don't. Um, the ones who know his name maybe don't know much about it. Just, oh, he's one of those kind of stories we hear about where it's, it's lost potential. And it, it's almost at times kind of a, one of those cliches in, in sports, these, these stories of people with incredible talent that one way or another didn't come to fruition. And all, all that to say, like, it, it's, a, it's a story that has resonance across generations and felt kind of right for this kind of this kind of exploration, not only in t- terms of, you know, telling the story of his life and, and of his death, but also, you know, there are so many ripple effects from his death. Um, there are so many ways in which his death, the, the impacts of it still linger with us today. Um, you know, and, and in this podcast, obviously, a lot of the episodes are kind of telling, giving you the blow by blow of, of the death and the investigation and of, of who he was as a player and who he was as a person. But we also wanted to kind of expand it outward into, you know, we have an episode that's really just setting the context for what the place that cocaine, you know, he died of a, a cocaine, cocaine intoxication, the place that cocaine had in our culture in, in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s, um, and, and just kind of establishing the fact that this drug was at this point in time, just absolutely everywhere, and was kind of ubiquitous in our culture in a way that um, is in some ways kind of hard to hard to grasp today. We have another episode that is just looking at the, the laws that were passed um, after he died, laws that were passed during this kind of moment of panic around cocaine and specifically crack cocaine, although Bias himself never used crack. Laws that are still on the books today that are now really seen as incredibly harsh and unjust and, and frankly racist. Um, and so you know, he was someone who, whose death had had impacts that linger in the sports world, um, very much so. Uh, when we're when we're talking about the the legacy of um, certain players and teams in the NBA, but also much more broadly, and and still has still impacting people's lives even today. For for those that that don't know the story, obviously go check it out, rate, review, subscribe, listen to the podcast. Um, but like, imagine Zion Williamson dying two days after being drafted like that that's he may not be as big as zion williamson was but like in that ballpark right so just for those that don't know the story that's what we're talking about here like i can't imagine what the internet would do if, if that were to happen today and and i i, I you, you mentioned your sort of the thing that you do is tell stories and you you sort of you start out with a topic or an idea or a place or a person and you sort of head into it you know so much about this type of story when you start this right 
And I'm just curious, what was your strategy? What was the plan going into it? Did you know you were going to have an episode about draconian cocaine laws? Did you know you were going to go this direction? Like, what was sort of the, and again, you can apply this to all the work that you do, the differences between a book and long form and a podcast, as far as the strategy when you start it? Yeah, I, I think for, especially for a podcast, the thing that you want is for it to be a story with multiple layers, um, a story that kind of allows you to branch off and, and go in a completely different direction um, for, for an episode, but still feel connected to the main story that you're telling. You know, to be honest, this story is in some ways tragic and sad and simple in that this is a, a young man, 22 years old, who one night did too much cocaine, cocaine that was incredibly pure, perhaps much purer than, than he realized at the time and quickly died. You know, that, that is in some ways just a, a short, simple story of, of one night where, where someone dies tragically. But it's also a story where if you look at those other layers, if you look at those other levels of kind of the ripple effects of his death and the way that it lingers um, inside and outside of the sports world, then you start to feel like, you know, th there's a lot of meat here to, to really explore. And so with this, we, yeah, I, I mapped out what we kind of thought the episodes could look like um, at, at the very beginning and then, and then started, started reporting accordingly. And that, that shape changes over time, but it, it's often good to just have a, have a sense of the direction in which you're going and, and have a sense of all of the different kind of ways in which the story can splinter off. And yeah, with, with this one in particular, it, it really felt like kind of going down those different rabbit holes, you know, a, a story like a, about these drug laws, which which we tell through the the eyes of Lynn Bias's close childhood friends who later served a decade in prison um, under these laws that were passed after Lynn Bias died. Or we're telling the story of, you know, we tell the story of another basketball player, Spencer Haywood, who, who in the 70s lost his NBA career to cocaine use, uh, uh, to, to addiction, but is now all these years later clean and sober and a grandfather and a husband and has a bust in the hall of fame and is here to tell us his story in a way that Lynn Bias is not. And so, so yeah, I, I think when you, when you start any story like this, you're kind of looking for what are the pieces of our, of our culture or the pieces of, of sports or, or the world outside of sports that this, this story kind of touches on that we can kind of branch off and, and explore and, and that's, and, and still tie it all together. Whether it's a whether it's a book or a, or a long form podcast like this, a lot of times these can sort of depend on who you get to talk for a story that's you know 30, 30 years old. Yeah. Was there anybody that you wanted uh, to talk to that you didn't? Was there anybody you surprised who did talk to you and you were like, "This is this, this turned out to be gold," or or how yeah. how did how that play out? So it was. Um... That's certainly one of the biggest challenge with, with this is, is this is something, this is a story that happened It's not, it's not a happy ago. story. And yeah. So sometimes yeah. <laughs> that, that precludes people from wanting to participate. Right. It, it happened 35 years ago. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult, difficult thing for, for people who are close to, to bias and close to the story to, to revisit. But I, I will say the first person I interviewed was his mother. And it felt like we couldn't do it without her. If she said no... Uh, it, it would just feel like this isn't worth trying. But she said yes and was generous with her time and is, I, I think, kind of the emotional core of, of the entire series. So I, I, was, I was deeply, deeply grateful to her. Um, also, Lefty Drizel, his coach at Maryland, who had to resign in the wake of, of Bias's death. You know, I spoke with him and he uh, was another critical voice. He was also someone who was you know, the episode that focuses on him, um, get, he, he got a little testy uh, at times with, with some of the, you know, re, basically revisiting this this uh, moment where he not only lost someone he cared about deeply, but also lost his job over kind of some of his actions in the wake of it. In terms of other people who, who we did not get to talk to, as you can hear in one of the episodes of the podcast, episode four, I... Uh, kind of did everything I could to try to get the people who were in the room with bias that night, also using cocaine to get them to talk. Um, I, I spent, spent a couple weeks in Maryland after I got vaccinated in, in May, which is right as we were wrapping up the podcast, um, basically doing what, what journalists have to do, which is not never, never fun, which is driving around, knocking on the doors of people you know do not want to talk to you, seeing if you can somehow convince them to talk to you, or at the very least, just getting them to tell you no to, to your face instead of ignoring you. 
And so I had to do that for, for about a solid week when I was in Maryland. Uh, and that's uh, and, those are fun times. Yeah, there, <laughs> it really, there's, there's nothing worse in, in this job than doing that. But occasionally you, you strike gold and, and someone is, is thrilled that you've shown up at their house and, and, and can't wait to talk to you. But, but in this case, you know, the, the people who were in the room with him that night, they didn't want to revisit it. And, and you have to respect that because, you know, this is one of the worst nights of their lives. It's, it's 35 years later and they, they just didn't feel up to, uh, up to reliving it. But yeah, I mean, it, it felt important to kind of exert every effort we possibly could to get everyone who was, who was close to the story and, and some were willing to talk somewhere. How different is your physical, actual writing process through all these different th- these different mediums? Because again, ri- writing for TV is different than writing for you know a podcast. Different writing a book, different writing long form. How, wh- how does your process change through all of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say writing for a narrative podcast feels much more casual than writing something that people are going to read on a page, whether it's a book or, or just a, a story that's going to be online. Um, it feels because in a podcast, you want it to, it's scripted, you know, down to the letter, but you want it to feel conversational. You want it to feel like you're talking to the listener. And so usually I, I don't obsess over every word um, when, when doing a podcast the way that I would when, when writing something else. And an, another part of that is like, these narrative podcasts are really, really collaborative. Um, you know, so much of what I do is really solitary. Um, it's just you, you and the laptop, or occasionally a notebook if I feel like writing longhand. And it's just you're you're trying to tell the story yourself. Um, and eventually, an editor will get their hands on it and and make it better. But with a podcast, it is. Let's see. I, I had worked with an editor and I think four producers on this who were. You know, some sometimes they were with me during the interviews if they were Zoom interviews. Um, but throughout the process, they were doing things like pulling archival footage of you know news reports, or they're working on what the music is going to sound like, or we're we're having conversations over kind of certain word choices, or or whether to cut certain certain sections. And so it really goes through. When you're writing that first draft of a script of a podcast, you know it's going to look very, very different by the end because so many other people are working on it with you, um, and you are kind of trusting them to, you know, make it sound good, uh, to to add that that beat of music or that moment of silence or whatever else that that is gonna is gonna make it kind of work for audio. Um, and so I really like that about it. I like that it feels, you know, it feels more collaborative. I also like that it's not. Uh, you know, writers, we can be really neurotic over our, our, oh, do, our word choices tell. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, no. with this, it, it just feels like the stakes are lower because it's not with a podcast. You can't, you know, when you write something that's going to be on a page, you know, someone can like stop at that sentence and reread it if they want to, whether they think it's really good or they think it's confusing or bad um, with a podcast. It's just kind of like in one ear and then it's gone. And um, you more remember the way a podcast makes you feel than you remember every single word that's in it. There's a performative aspect of it too that you never you never got in an English class. That, that yeah. What was it like to what was because I, I think your voice is in in the podcast is really good and and it's it's all I think it's really entertaining. That's hard to learn. How do or or, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe you maybe you were able to to just do this from the outset. Did you have to learn it? Did you have to work at it? What, what what's it yeah. like? Do you like yourself on tape? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to listen. It's definitely hard to listen to myself on tape, but that's that's one thing that you have to do with this because you the way you would write a rough draft of of a written piece, you have to do rough drafts of the podcast where it's the full like completed um like you've recorded everything, you've spliced in all the audio and then you listen to it and you figure out what works and doesn't. So I had to listen to my, I had to get really, really well acquainted with my own voice, which is not fun. Um, but it is calling it a performance is, is right. Like it's, I mean, it's not too dissimilar from even, you know, for, for you guys, like a, a podcast like, like this, or like being on the radio, Braden, like you are, you're being yourself, but you're also being a version of yourself that is kind of very much on and, and, and aware that you're speaking to an audience with this. It, it's somewhat similar. Like it, it's kind of, my, my senior year of high school, I like on a whim tried out for the high school musical and, and was, was in it. And like, was like, I, I had basketball practice at 6am every day and then was rehearsal for the musical in the afternoons. And like, 
at some point I realized, oh man, I'm actually more excited about rehearsals for the musical than I am for basketball practice. And like, it's, it's completely turning on my head, everything I, I thought that, that I was. Well, uh, I bet your director never made you run wind sprints. That, that is true. No, no suicides at, at rehearsal. But, but it, it felt like that, like doing, doing this kind of podcast feels like you are, you're almost acting in a way, like you're the role you're acting is the role of narrator, but you have to be, you have to feel like you're performing. And, and I will say, you know, with both of the, the podcasts I've done, Every time, it's not just me sitting by myself in a room recording myself. It is me sitting with several other people. Um, for the last one, it was in person. For this one, it was over Zoom with a mic who were listening to me, where we're tweaking the language, where they're telling me, eh, take that again. Like, can you be a little more, can you emphasize this word? Or can you be a little bit more dramatic here? Or maybe can you be a little bit more just straightforward and less dramatic? Um, so it is like, thought and care goes into the way every single word is kind of is spoken. And it's a, it's a long, long process. Um, and it's, you know, from when you first write that, that first word of a script to the actual episode that comes out in the end, it goes through a, a ton of revisions and uh, it, it can be exhausting at times, but it, but it's fun. So I, I find it interesting because you, I will think, and this is what makes me jealous of, of good writers. Both of you are, are, are that is that I find it so much easier on the air and in person or talking or on a podcast or even orally, you can do things with your voice. You can do things with your delivery that sort of, like you said, elicit an emotion. And I find we can transition to sort of your, your, your other written work here. And again, the reason we're talking with him is not only because he has an awesome podcast out right now, but he is a Nashvilleian and he's written about Nashville and the Titans and uh, about restaurants and food in Nashville. So we'll get to all of that. But what I admire the most about great writers is the ability to elicit all of that emotion without the ability of like voice inflection. <laughs> like you can't create a dramatic pause in a sentence. You have to do all of that with your words. And, and I find that to be one of the most, it pisses me off that I cannot do that and that great writers can. Uh, yeah, that is, I mean, it, it's a difficult thing to do. And, and I think we try to do it a lot and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, I think that the, the, the way in which you can, you can hopefully achieve that sometimes it's through pacing sometimes it's through just knowing um how a story should unfold and, and at what point a certain detail should be dropped in um a lot of it is about you know really just comes from how good were your interviews like how deep inside someone's head did you get um so that you're able to really kind of show their experience in a way that feels authentic and, and hopefully moving um and and then you know a, a lot of it is just kind of like instincts over like I think when you are, you know, when, when writing is what you do, you're kind of always, anytime I consume any story anywhere, whether it's a, a TV show or a podcast or a book, or just someone sitting at a bar telling me a really good story, there, there's this piece of my brain that is always like studying them and, or, and studying, studying the way the story is being told. And when, when you, when you've been doing that for so long, you kind of internalize what are the things that leave me feeling either excited or moved or wh whatever else? And like, how can I find ways to incorporate that in, into my own writing? And it, it's always the goal. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but, but when it does, it, it, feels, it feels pretty good. Lamestream, Steve, is brought to you by... Jaspers! That was a little shorter. Nashville, I see on the road this weekend. So uh, they are there on a Sunday too, by the way. So uh, I got to tell you, you can uh, go watch at Jasper's. By the way, they've been scoring a lot here recently, kind of wearing me out. So <laughs> you got to you got to conserve. Uh, of course, the ever evolving menu at the next evolution of the sports bar is taking place as we speak. Uh, Deb Paquette putting together a couple of new twists for the menu. What's it as like to see evolution in motion? I think it's probably a sauce with some like red bell pepper essence in there. I probably think, so. I think that's probably exactly what evolution looks like. In <laughs> Might involve some cauliflower in real time. Um, so obviously the big sporting event right now is the Olympics. And I was thinking about this with our guest this week on the show, Jordan, because I am an admirer of his work, but the, I, I, I wanted to, I was thinking about why I'm an admirer of his work and you've already called his um, or somebody called his work graceful. And we used the word elegant earlier in the show to describe him. I, I, I don't watch television broadcasters and get jealous. I don't like maybe of their hair, 
but like I don't get I don't get jealous of the skill set. I think if I worked hard enough, I could be on television. I've done some TV work in the past. You know, I'm comfortable in radio. I'm comfortable in the podcast. I, like I just to your point earlier in the show, if you could pick, if I could pick a skill in the sports media world that I know I will never have that I've always wanted, it is the ability to just write, just to have it pour out of you eloquently and, and gracefully and succinctly. And um, that is my, like, if I was drafting media skills, my number one pick would be like, well, I God, I just wish I could write like these guys and men and women that know how to write. What, do you get that way when you listen to a great radio show, Steve? You know, uh, I, I was thinking about this. I'm not jealous of color commentators. I am jealous of apparently the amount of happiness that Rowdy Gaines has when he is calling swimming uh, on NBC. Like, like that. Like he has touched some part of sunshine that I can never touch. I'm in awe of it every time I listen to him. Like nobody's that happy on you know in real life, and yet Rowdy is every Olympics. It's funny. Like I don't. You know, maybe it's just my college football, you know, inner id or whatever. But I do think Chris Fowler and Reese Davis, those two guys in particular, in the way they handle game day, that 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 is like an extremely difficult, complicated job. And I admire their air traffic control abilities, uh, especially Fowler with the ability to drop in the, the nugget of wisdom in like half a sentence and get back on the cue card. So maybe maybe there is some of that, but I don't really look around in, in the media and get jealous of too many skills. But like my friend, like you, like you, people I've worked with that I know are just really good writers. I'm just like, God damn it. <laughs> like, why can't I do that? Hey, uh, how, how are we going to Jaspers, by the way? How are we going to bring this one home? Uh... <laughs> You're right. I'm not I don't have anything to bring this home with. Hmm. Go to Jasper's. Maybe we should just go to Jasper's. And they, if we drank some alcoholic popsicles at Jasper's, I would become a better writer. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. Brought it home. Go to Jasper's, folks. Just barely. I want to talk a little bit about your first book, uh, The Road from Raqqa, which uh, was is fantastic. And you should, if you're listening to this, you should definitely go out and buy it right now. Uh, I think there are still some signed copies at uh, Parnassus, maybe? I, I think maybe. Um, and the paperback just came out uh in in july um so yeah awesome back's out now too for people that for people that aren't familiar uh uh what is what what is the road from raqqa about uh and then i have uh some very specific food questions uh <laughs> after that yeah so the road from raqqa is you know i i can tell the story by telling how i kind of came to it so back in 2015 uh, I was working at ESPN, the magazine, and I, I was living here in Nashville, um, had, had just moved here a couple years before. I, I was born in Nashville, but lived a lot of my life elsewhere and then came back in, in about 2014. And so I was living here, working on a story for ESPN, the magazine, in which I had traveled to the Syria-Turkey border to, to write about a soccer team there that was comprised of former kind of Syrian national team players and, and professional soccer players who had um, were kind of defected to kind of the, the rebel side of the, the Syrian civil war. And so had formed this new soccer team that was to represent basically the rebels and this ongoing conflict, kind of a, you know, they called it the free Syrian national team rather than the, the Syrian national team that represented a, a dictatorship. And so I had gone over there to, to do some reporting and I came back home. And while I was home, I was gearing up to, to make a return trip, but I needed someone in the Nashville area who spoke the Syrian dialect of Arabic to help me translate some interviews, to sit with me and, and call some sources and, and, and interview them. And, um, so I asked around and, uh, you know, my wife teaches religion at Belmont. And so she, she's friends with a man who is the, uh, the president of the Islamic center of Nashville at the time, Rashid Verkruden. And so I, I reached out to him and said, do you know anyone who speaks, you know, Syrian Arabic who, who could help me out with this? And he said, yes, drive out to Hendersonville. There's a restaurant there. It's called Cafe Raqqa. Go in introduce yourself to the chef and he'll help you out. And, you know, I, I'd just gotten back from this part of the world. This is a time when ISIS is really kind of at the peak of its power. And the kind of de facto capital of ISIS at that time was the city Raqqa, Syria. And I'm thinking to myself, why is there a restaurant in Hendersonville, Tennessee, 
called Cafe Raka. Um, but I go, I show up, I, I ask for the owner, and he just immediately just greets me with this incredibly warm welcome and gives me all of this, you know, piles of, of hummus and baba ganoush and shawarma and wants to sit and talk about Syria. Um, and when we go to the back and we, we call my source and he translates the interview and he's clearly deeply moved by what the, the, the source is saying and, and, and by the chance to talk to someone who's been actively involved in kind of this struggle for freedom in, in his home country. Anyway, at, at the end of that, I, I just find myself, I sit with, with the chef who, whose name is Riyad Al-Qasim and I, I listen to him tell his story of how he came to the United States as a young man in, in 1990, hoping to kind of learn our system of government so that he could bring it back home and, uh, and, and try to reform Syria. Um, and, and he tells me about his story of immigration to this country and then about his brother Bashar's story of at this point being stuck in Syria during the war, but hoping to sometime soon escape and, um, and, and get out. And his, his brother Bashar eventually leaves Syria and becomes a refugee in, in Europe. And I, I'm working on this story for ESPN, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, like, I want to be telling this guy's story. Like, this is uh, such an incredible story. I can't stop thinking about it. And it, it just stuck with me for a long time. And, you know, we, we spent a little bit of time with each other here and there. But after about a year or so, I started talking to him about the possibility of, of doing this book. And um, and he and his brother were both interested in, in you know, allowing me to do it. And um, so, yeah, it, it turned into this book that is about you know, these two brothers from Syria who leave at very different moments in history. Um, and much of it centers around Riyadh, the brother who lives here in, in Hendersonville, around his journey back to Syria to try to convince his younger brother and the rest of his family to leave. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's a story about, you know, two very different kind of immigration stories interwoven together over a period of decades. With with lots of scenes of cooking. And yes. <laughs> and, and if you if you know, we talk about sports and music bringing people together across a diverse cross section of the population. Uh, food does that as well. And I, I think one of the one of the most vivid scenes I can remember from the book, and I know Steve's got some food questions, too, is and the thing that sticks with me, even when I eat his food now, is you sort of telling the story about how as Riyadh is leaving Syria, he gets sort of like pulled into some, he gets pu- sort of pulled into a kitchen and taught the ways that, that this is how you're supposed to do this. This is what makes it ours culturally. And that is sort of what he, his goal is to share it. Right. So I, I don't know, like you talked about finding those moments where you just sort of can tell the story and paint the picture and elicit an emotional response. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like for me, that was one of the, and I don't even think I have a question here, the, the ability to sort of paint that picture. I, I could smell it. I could hear it. I could taste it. And I think that's, um, that's what makes the book so genuine and so, you know, so enjoyable for me. Thank you. That, that, that's really kind. And, you know, that goes to something again, like I, my job is to tell stories, but my, my job is to tell nonfiction stories. And in order to tell true stories as a, as a writer, someone's got to tell them to you or, or you have to observe them firsthand. A lot of it is luck. And, and I happen to get lucky and that, that Riyadh and, and his brother in a very different way, although his brother is much more reserved, they're really, really good storytellers. So, so when I sit down with him, he is able to kind of take me into that room. It's this, um, this moment where he's about to leave for America. He thinks he's coming here to be a lawyer. And this man who's known as kind of like the hummus master of their town pulls him into a dark room where he makes his hummus and says, since you're leaving this country, I can tell you my secrets. Maybe they'll be useful to you someday. This is my one gift that I have to give you. I, I'm going to teach you how I make my hummus. No one else in, in Syria can ever know this, but since you're leaving the country, I will I will show it to you. And, and Riyadh was able to tell that story to me in a way that felt so, so powerful and gripping that makes it kind of, when you sit down to type it and write it for a reader, it makes it so much easier when the person who has told the story to you, uh, you know, tells it so passionately. This place, Cafe Raka, is 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 one of the best places to eat in the area here. So for for people that uh for people that are going to go up there, what should they get on the menu? And one of the advantages of getting to know somebody like that is that sometimes there's a little something off menu. Is there anything off menu that uh, maybe like back in the kitchen that uh, <laughs> that you've gotten? 
then I'm going to be really. Oh man. Let's see. I, I have gotten, um, well, well first, first I'll say in terms of what you should get, I mean, you know, it, it, it's the simple. Whole menu is great. Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole menu is great. And, but this is a dish that, that is simple and that, that you can get so many places, but I, I swear to you, his hummus, like, like I just told you the story of how he learned how to make it. It, it is the best hummus I've ever had. Um, it, it's just, it, it, it's amazing. The, uh, you know, I, there, there are so many things. I honestly, when I, typically when I go there, I, I don't order. He, he just he chooses something <laughs> for that, that he wants me to eat. And, uh, the, the shawarma is, is incredible. That that's probably my, my go-to the, if you go during lunch, he, you know, some of just the, like, there's like a, a chicken tikka wrap that, that he makes that, that's incredible. Um, he does a lamb burger that oh, is unlike so any good. burger you, you you would typically have, but it, it's so good. It's, it's massive. Um, <laughs> and in terms of off the menu, yeah. I mean, he oftentimes it, it's just whatever he happens to have in a given moment. And he'll, you know, he, it's one of those restaurants where because he is so intentional about greeting so many of his customers he, he has built relationships with a lot of customers over a number of years and so there are dishes where if, if he knows you and you're a regular he'll tell you oh you've got to try this or or you've got to try that um some of the things that have been infrequent but when he does them they're they're incredible he makes salmon in a way that is unlike unlike i've ever had salmon before um just with the you know with with the particular syrian spices that, that he uses to cook it some of his pastries he, he makes these kind of savory pastry dishes that are uh, I, I can't i can't remember how to pronounce the the word in, in arabic but these kind of savory pastry dishes that are somewhere between um like what you would eat for breakfast and like a pizza that are really really great uh and and those you know just pop up every now and then the tea is incredible uh he makes this you know th there's another story in the in the book of this thing that he doesn't put on the menu but that he will make called sick tea um that is a, a recipe that he was taught by his grandmother when when he was a little kid that, that she would always make for him and his siblings anytime they got sick when guy fieri came to the restaurant to to film an episode of diners driving and dives he was feeling a little bit under the weather and Riyadh just made him a, a cup of sick tea gave it to him said here drink this and and then you'll be feeling fine and within a matter of minutes uh you know fear he had perked back up and, and was excitedly bounding around the restaurant um so that's not on the menu but but he'll make it for you if he knows you're not feeling well um he he is just you know the food itself is is just incredible but the kind of the hospitality that, that Riyadh has as, as the owner and the chef is is part of what makes that place so such a special place if you go Anything, any, everything is great. Um, you, you, you can't go wrong. Go eat at the restaurant and go buy the book. Now in paperback, of course. You've got a pot, two basketball podcasts. You've written about the Titans for the ringer as well. Um, and the Preds once upon a time. And the Preds. What, what is it? Obviously, you're a huge basketball fan and, 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 and you love storytelling. What, what are your favorite sports to write about and why? Yeah, I, you know, basketball is the sport that I follow the most closely. Um, so it's often easy for me to find stories in and around basketball because, because I'm such a big fan. I would say I'm, I'm also a huge college football fan. That is kind of a, a sport that I, for me, I write about it rarely. I, I, I write about it here and there, but it's mostly just like, I don't want to spend my Saturdays in the fall in a press box. I want to send them, spend them sitting at home on my couch, watching every single game. I also, I really love to write about soccer when it comes to kind of the tactics of the sport and, and everything like that. I'm, I'm very much a novice, but I think soccer is, is one of those sports where, you know, what I love is, is writing about the intersection between sports and kind of our broader culture and, and sometimes even like geopolitics and, and soccer. It, it's just always, that always feels very present in, in that sport, especially in, in big events like the World Cup. I think you and can get so, that in college football right now. You can, you can, you absolutely can. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There, there's a lot going on in that sport. And, you know, as a Nashvilleian, it's actually, so I, I was born here, but I grew up mostly in Atlanta. So I'm a long suffering Atlanta sports fan for the most part. But having moved back here in adulthood, it's like the one Nashville team that I've really kind of hitched myself to is uh, is Nashville SC. So I'm, I'm not, not a Titans fan or, or a Preds fan, but NSC has, I'm, I'm a season ticket holder there and, and 
so you know getting getting finding a way to kind of connect to the city through through that team and and being a part of um kind of loving that team from the very beginning has been uh it has been a lot of fun i haven't written about them yet but but maybe maybe i'll I'll find a way to it at some point in the future but soccer is one of those sports where anytime i get a chance to do a soccer story i I know it's going to be a lot of fun i wanted to ask you about something you wrote a while ago we all kind of got enamored by this sarah fuller story uh last Mm -hmm. year i think it was 2011 or 2012 you wrote a piece for grantland about a the LSU goalie who was trying out for the college football team. I, I was wondering if you saw echoes of, of that when the Fuller stuff was, was breaking or not, or, or I, I, yeah. I was just kind of fascinated because if you, if you want to, if you want to go find it, it's called let it fly search for let it fly uh, in Grantland and, and you'll find it. It's just a fabulous piece. Thank you. That, that is one of my, honestly, probably one of my favorite stories I, I've written. It was, it was one of, one of the first, my first chances at writing kind of a big, long story like that. Um, uh, yeah. About a woman at, at LSU named Mo Isom, who's uh, all STC level, I believe goalie for, for their soccer team who, who wanted to play football and um, spent months working out with the football team, trying to make the team ultimately did not make it. But yeah, I, I did see, I did see echoes of, of that story um, last year with Sarah Fuller. And I, I think what, what is interesting is to see, progress that has been made around because this is something that's happened before it it happens um i I can't remember the names but in even in the early aughts there there was um kicker at uh, i believe unlv and colorado a female kicker who who was able to get onto the field and and seeing it seeing it then and seeing so much of the just misogyny that, that was spewed toward, um, you know, toward those women who, who have tried to do this in the past and, and seeing it now um, where there's still plenty of that uh, for sure. But, but that, that story, Sarah Fuller at least felt like a, a an exciting thing to be celebrated in, in, in a lot of corners of the city last year. Um, this, certainly there is still a lot of uh, Twitter eggs that, that were saying awful vile things, but um <laughs> But but it's still it still felt like this uh, like something worthy of celebration in a way that um, you know the, these other women had had gone through similar experiences that, that were not celebrated and, um, and and where they faced um, you know some really vile stuff and uh, and, and and so that was I, I certainly felt kind of echoes of, of those stories um, when when you know seeing her last year. Is it mean a little bit more when you get to write about the predators or the titans? Just because you live here now and because you're from here, you have family from here, you've written a book about here. Like, does it, yeah. are you more, I don't know, does it change the way you approach it? You know, what What it What it does is often when I write these stories, I'm going to another city and I'm spending a few days there and I'm trying to kind of understand the place. Um, I'm talking to a lot of people. I'm trying to figure out kind of something about the kind of the connection between the city and the team, um, where, where the team kind of fits in culturally. And getting to do that about you know your own city is is really fun. It, it's like it, it serves as a way to um, you know I feel like it helps me to understand pieces of Nashville that um, I, I might not otherwise experience or, or know. You know, for the the most recent one I, about Nashville, Nashville was about the Titans. Um, you know, kind of heading into the the AFC Championship game a couple of years ago. You know, getting to talk with people who uh, ha- have just been diehard fans of this team since since day one um in in a city that is so associated with with transplants at this point and so associated with the ways in which it's changing and with the um the the ways in which people are coming here from all all over the country and kind of you know changing the city in ways that sometimes feel exciting and sometimes feel like we're, we're losing something um that that story was a way to kind of really connect to and hear the stories of people who have been, um, you know, so invested in this franchise and so invested in, in the city um, for, for a really, really long time and, and felt like a way to kind of experience Nashville um, in, in a way that felt new to me. Uh, and so, and that story also, you know, my little brother, he's much younger than me. So he, he has lived here for longer of his life. So he is more of a Nashville sports fan. He, he also has some Atlanta loyalties, but, you know, being able to kind of talk with him about the Titans and, and hear him kind of talk through like the, the hopes that he had heading into that AFC title game and the, you know, his memories of, of kind of the painful moments that had all led up, led up to that. Um, yeah. It, it's a way to, 
you know, sports give us a way to connect with people in, in, in new ways and connect to communities in new ways. And being able to do that in the city that, that you call home was uh, is always a really cool thing. A lot of the work that a lot of the really excellent work that you do is in this kind of longer form. You, you've, you've been lucky that you've been able to kind of carve out a career of doing these kind of larger, more in-depth pieces. For someone who, for someone who wants to get into that kind of work, what did you learn along the way? And, and what kind of advice would you have to say someone who's, you know, college kid or, or a young journalist who's, who's looking at these pieces thinking, wow, I really wish that I could, I could tackle something like that. Yeah. Um, let's see a few things. Um, I, the the biggest thing, I mean, this is cliche, but it's it's very very true. Is just read, 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 and and read critically. Um, read thinking about like studying the storytelling. Um, read fiction, read nonfiction. Uh, take that same approach when you're watching movies or listening to narrative podcasts or or whatever else. Just be thinking about how the story is being told and and trying to kind of deconstruct it. Think about you know how how you can approximate something like that. Another thing is you know all of these all of these kind of long form stories are, they only succeed if you get the material. And that's comes from sitting down with the people you're interviewing and being really curious about their lives, you know, ha- having a genuine desire to understand what their experience is like, um, not going into it with some, you know, we all have certain ideas about where a story is going to go, but not being married to your kind of preconceived notions, being being willing to go wherever the, the interview or the conversation takes you. And then, you know, on a more practical level, the thing that I, I always tell younger journalists is just like, find a way to take a shot at writing um, th- this longer stuff, whether that's doing something on your own time, or it's doing something for, you know, some a, a smaller outlet somewhere that will, will give you the the, the space that, that you need to, to tell a story at length. Just finding a way to, to get some reps, giving it a shot, because... You know, the jump from writing something that's 800 words to 3,000 to a book um, is is significant every single time. And so you have to get reps giving it a shot. You have to get reps doing it badly. Uh, and, and those can be hard to find. Yeah, that that's um, th- those are the, the main things that come to mind. Just read, listen intently when you are doing your interviews and um, and find ways to kind of take chances and, and possibly fail a, a little bit so that you can, you can get better and better. Can you tease and tell everybody anything else you might be working on in the future? Are you allowed to talk about anything or just go check out the podcast by the book? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am working, I'm working on a book and I haven't really, I haven't talked about it publicly really, but you know, it, it's been, it's been announced and like in the, in the publishing industry. So I, I guess I can say a little bit about it. Um, I, I'm writing a book about masculinity in America that will be done by interweaving, you know, basically doing what I do, which is telling someone's story really, really intimately and trying to kind of get inside their head and, and then, you know, tell a story that shows, who they are, what their experience is like. Um, and so this this book will be interweaving the stories of several different men from vastly different backgrounds and with vastly different experiences um, in different corners of America, kind of weaving their stories together, hopefully in a way that is, you know, that is nonfiction, but reads as if it's fiction. Men who are, uh, who are, straights who are gay trans um who are, who are whites or, or people of color um men who have you know differing relationships to you know things that we associate with with masculinity like um whether it be sports or violence or uh kind of a i i don't know so, so much else that we kind of we associate with masculinity in this country and the ways in which it kind of impacts their lives the ways in which they kind of perform the ways that we all perform our own sense of masculinity. So weaving their stories together over uh, over the course of a book, it's. I've only been working on it for a few months. I'm not sure when it will be done, but I'm I'm under contract for it and uh, and, and excited to be doing it. And, uh, and and so yeah, that that's coming somewhere down the line. And in, in the meantime, at the Ringer, I'll be continuing to continuing to write stories for the site and hopefully get going on on another narrative podcast sometime soon. I want to ask you one last thing here to get out on, uh, which I think is. Uh, if, if you've ever written anything uh, and you've been kind of waiting for feedback on it, Road from Raqqa comes out last year. And I remember you waiting intently on the New York Times book review to come down because 
if you write a book and the New York Times review comes out and it's good, it it can make or break a book, uh, and it and it can make or break a chance to to do another book. What was yeah. it like waiting for that? And did you did you wake up or and like refresh the site or, or how how'd you get it? It was terrifying. Um, it was terrifying. <laughs> I, I think I saw you soon. Yeah, it, it was a few weeks before the book came out, and I, I was telling you, you know, they when the New York Times is going to review your book they tell you in advance, we are reviewing your book. Um, and <laughs> so I, I knew it was going to happen. I have no idea whether- Thanks for ruining not. my life, New York Times. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I tried to tell myself, well, you know, I'm a first time author. I, I, I'm a nobody. Like, why would they take the time to review my book if they're going to rip it to shreds? Um, that's what. That's how I, I tried to kind of calm myself <laughs> down leading up to that day. And then, yeah, that when that day came, I knew because I had looked, I had studied it in the weeks leading up to it. So books always come out on Tuesdays. I saw that all of their reviews for that day's books went up at 5 a.m. on um, on that Tuesday. And so that day, I don't Is think that I 5 a.m. Eastern or 5 a.m. Central. I believe it was 5 a.m. Eastern, but I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. That day without setting an alarm, I, I just, I happened to wake up right around then oh. um, just because I, I was so, had, had so many <laughs> nerves and I grab my phone. I immediately go to their website. I, I look for it. I see it. My, my wife wakes up next to me uh, and, and she knows exactly what I'm doing. And I, I just read through it bleary eyed. And I just remember saying, I think it's good. I think it's good. <laughs> and then getting to the end and saying, okay, it's good. It's good. And then going back to sleep. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was like this one person who you don't know who they are, who's been assigned to, to review your book, they hold so much power over you. Um, and, and the reviewer of my book, a woman named Jessica Goudeau, who wrote, wrote a book that's um, in, in many ways similar called After the Last Border, you know, just knowing that there is this one person out there who can, like you said, make or break not only this book, but also my chances to write another book is, uh, is a really vulnerable thing. Um, so that was, yeah, that, that was a nerve wracking day. I told myself leading up to it that no matter what, I was going to have a good day, even if the review was bad, but fortunately it was, it, it was good. And it, uh, yeah, made, made, made release day a lot more, um, a lot more relaxing. I feel like there's a, a, a tether here from the vulnerability back to the masculinity, but I'll let you explore that a little further. Uh, Jordan, there is. There Jordan, is, Braden. Jordan is a must follow on Twitter. He's a must read on the ringer. He's a must read on your bookshelves and he's a must listen to, of course, on your podcast app. So check out the Lynn bias pod. You got a podcast about Seattle supersonics as well. You, you got it all, man. And, and we appreciate you giving us so much of your time. We do appreciate it. Everyone go out and follow all of his stuff. Jordan. Thank you, man. We appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Oh, special thanks to Jordan for joining us, of course. Please go check out all of the stuff, right, Steve? Like, check out all the podcasts, check out the long-form stuff, check out the restaurant, go buy the book. There's so much stuff there that Jordan has produced. And I, I think the one thread that that he obviously explained, Steve, is sort of, and it's something that my wife has probably tried to teach me and probably something I need to learn more of every day of my life, which is to sit and listen intently to try to get to know someone on a deeper level. And I think he does it so well. It's why he's able to tell people's stories so well, I think. I think that's one of the reasons why he's been he's been able to kind of transition over and do this other thing. Doing a long-form podcast is a very different, executing it at a high level is a very different thing than kind of being a solitary writer and sitting down in a room and finishing a, a piece or a book or whatever else. And, and that kind of thoughtfulness is really what gives him the ability to kind of toggle between these different media. And I, I just think it's, it's rare to find all that kind of in one person. Uh, and if I sound like Jordan's agent and Jordan, you get a raise next time. Well, Hey, give me a cut. So um, I think we've, I think we've said enough positive things about the man so far on the show. He's never going to come back. It's going to get a little weird. So um, anyway, go buy his book, go listen to the podcast, go read his work uh, all over the ringer and everywhere else. And again, go eat at cafe Raka. It is spectacular food. The, it is so good. And, and I'm glad Jordan said this because my wife and I said this to each other. We're like, are we crazy or is this the best hummus we've ever had in our entire life? Right. And it, and, it might actually be. Well, and it, it's funny because you think, oh, it's hummus. You know, it's not chickpeas. You know, it, 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 it's a chickpeas. It's, it should just be the thing. And you take a bite of it and you're like, oh, that's really, really actually yeah. better than it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. All right. Thank you to Jordan for joining us. We do appreciate it. Go buy, go spend money on all of this stuff. Pay for good journalism. Okay, Steve. 
What do we got for recommendations this week? Uh, my recommendation is uh, is a writer at the Athletic. Uh, this guy named Felipe Cardenas. He covers he covers soccer f- for the Athletic, but most specifically, he covers Atlanta United. I have been kind of obsessed with kind of why Atlanta United was so good early and then has seemingly just sort of all fallen apart. They have this tremendous fan base. It has a lot to do with things that Cardenas has, has written about. He did a takeout on kind of the coaching situation. You know, they had Tata Martino, who was an ex-Barcelona coach, who, who's now the Mexico coach, uh, who probably wanted to stay there. And they would probably still be killing everyone in the league if Martino were still there. And he left. They bring in Frank DeBoer from, from the Netherlands, who's this real high-profile player, and he does not do it. <laughs> he gets fired. Uh, and he has, has been able to write about sort of how they built this culture really quickly and how it's kind of fallen apart. He and he's just a he's a delightful writer, but he he writes about a lot of other soccer topics as well. He has a really good Q and A with John Strong and, and Stu Holden, uh, you know, and and their coverage on Fox. He wrote a lot about Copa America from Atlanta uh, and about you know Lionel Messi and Argentina and how they did it. He's just a really good writer and somebody that you should follow if you have an athletic subscription. Just add him to your feed because you'll even if you're not like I don't want to read about Atlanta United all the time, but I do want to read him. And he's really, really interesting right now. Yeah. Um, I'm shocked that you recommended something that had to do with soccer. Um, all right. So my recommendation is going to go way different from a sports standpoint and a little self-serving, to be honest with you. Love Island? Are you, <laughs> are you in Love Island now? I, I already did that once this yeah. month. That's my, I've, I've reached my quota. Um, no, of course, I will be self-serving here. And as Titans Camp is opening up, Titans coverage is ramping up over at Broadway Sports Media, which is, of course, a partner of the 440 Sports Network, Football and Other F-Words podcast, of course, every Tuesday, the Music City Audible uh, with with the Justins. Those guys do a fantastic job talking to prospects, studying film. And, of course, the Home Run Throwback is back now that training camp is open. So uh, we've got they've got a, a fantasy show. They've got Sunday night stuff. They've got the Coach's Corner. They've got, like, six shows. So make sure if you're a Titans fan, you're checking out Broadway Sports Media's podcasts. All of them, of course, are part of our network here. So, yes. A little self-serving, but very good. What a good rec. Very good content, so go check it out. And it's like you could listen to some Titan stuff like every day, and they got you covered every single day. You, you won't, you, you'll get fresh content all the time. So uh, go check it out. I was, I was talking with uh, John Glennon at practice today, actually. So, uh, all right, Steve, that just about does it. Where should people go eat if they're going to watch the Olympics and drink a beer over the course of the next fortnight? They should go to Jasper's. They, you should pretty much go to Jasper's right now. If you're driving around listening to this, just point your car towards West End. There's free parking. You'll be able to park there, and it won't cost you anything. And go to Jasper's. I agree with that. That's quite a recommendation on your part, Steve. I do what I can. <laughs> go go to Jasper's because Lanestream Sports is brought to you by Jasper's, the next evolution of a sports bar. Great menu, great happy hour, great place to watch the Olympic Games in prime time if you haven't already seen all the action on the Twitters. And you can leave your car there for free. I don't know about overnight, but you can leave your car there. Hey, if people are on Twitter, where can they find you, Braden? At Braden Gall. This is when I know Steve's ready to go. Steve, where can they find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you want to see pictures of my dogs, go follow me at Scavendish on Instagram. There you have it. At 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook as well. Special thanks to Jordan Ritter Khan for joining us. Have a great weekend, everybody. For Steve Cavendish, my name is Braden Gall. This has been Lamestream Sports on the 440 Sports Network.